Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Good, 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 good. I like the room. You all look very good in this configuration. Welcome to those joining us from a new angle online. I see up there. We had new cameras installed this week. They're pretty techy cool, if I do say so myself. But I'm the guy who was clapping for himself a minute ago, so take it for what it's worth, I guess. Well, guys, uh, we do we preach in series most often here at New Day, and there's a couple of different type of sermon series that you've heard if you've been around a bit, but maybe you're new and you don't know this. Um, some are topical, right? Like the Lord is One was our last one. That was the topic of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we go and search scripture. What does it say broadly about those topics? What are specific instances where it talks about that? That's topical. But then this is a series on the book of Malachi where we're going to go right through the book and talk about what it says in its order and in its structure. And so that's called an exegetical or expository type of series. And we've got three weeks on Malachi. I get the privilege of kicking it off with you today. So, Merrily, oh my goodness. Great start. Kathy is your MC today, not merrily. And she talked about Advent, the season of Advent where we celebrate the, the coming of Jesus. Advent means arrival, right? So we're celebrating, commemorating that Jesus arrived at, in the form of a baby as a human. And now we wait in hope for his second arrival when he returns. And so I love that the Lord was speaking the same thing to Kathy as he was to me as I prepared this message. I was thinking about the waiting too. We didn't talk about that. It's just what the Lord was highlighting to both of us. Um, As Kathy also mentioned, Malachi's at the end of the Old Testament, right? It's sort of the Bible's last word before Jesus. Um, The content of the book includes promises of a messenger who will come and prepare the way of the Lord and a Messiah to come to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. So for us, the birth of Jesus is literally just the turn of a page from Malachi to Matthew, and it tells the genealogy of Jesus and starts his birth story. But for them, it would be about 400 years between the ministry of Malachi and the birth of Jesus. That's a long wait, isn't it? I mean, anyone ever get grumpy in the drive-thru? Like, where's my coffee? <laughs> Micah works at Bigby, and people get grumpy in the drive-thru. I now know. He, I hear his war stories. <laughs> Imagine waiting 400 years for your latte. Pretty rough, right? Is it even going to be hot at that point? I don't know. Definitely not. Okay, so waiting is a good theme. Malachi's audience is waiting for the promised Messiah. We wait for his return. And right now, if you have children in your home, they're anxiously waiting for their Christmas presents. And some of us adults are having trouble waiting too. I have trouble waiting to give them, actually. I buy stuff for Marilyn, and I'm like, I want to give it to her right now. But anyways, I also like getting them. Okay, so Malachi's audience didn't wait well, you guys. They didn't wait well. They forgot their identity, purpose, and mission. They failed to be faithful. They feigned worship. That means their worship was insincere. And they followed the ways of the nations surrounding them. They did not wait well. The trials and doubts that come with waiting knocked them totally off course. So the 
book of Malachi and Malachi's ministry as a prophet served as a promise and a warning. The promise is return to the Lord and the blessings that come with that will be yours. It's an awesome promise and we'll dig into it some more. But the flip side of it, the warning is if you don't return to the Lord, his judgment will come and this will not be pleasant. That's what the book of Malachi is all about. (laughs) It provided a call to return to faithfulness in the waiting for the promise. And it sort of begs the question, when the Messiah arrives, will he find a faithful people? And the same question applies today, doesn't it? When Jesus returns, will he find us faithful or not? This little book is so cool because it comes at the end. I'll show you a historical timeline of where it fits in history as well. And it's at the end of the Old Testament in our Bible. Um, And so it's got the benefit of looking back at layer upon layer of biblical themes and motifs that are built over thousands of years, literally thousands of years. And so Malachi can just drop a word or a little phrase here and activate a whole world of meaning. Um, Some of those things, we might not dig into all of these, but you can check it out on your own and study some more. Um, Covenant faithfulness, we'll definitely be talking about that one a lot. That's a, he can just say a word like covenant or love, and it implies so much about the covenant faithfulness of God and what it means to have the terms of a covenant between God and his people. It's a huge theme. Blessing and curse. This is a two-sided coin and a huge biblical theme. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And then like Kathy and I both mentioned already, messianic hope. They live at a time where there's been this buildup you know, sort of a category created called the Anointed One, Messiah. And it's like a Christmas tree with no presents under it. You know, it's just waiting to be filled, <laughs> fulfilled by Jesus. Okay, so let's look at the timeline. I love spreadsheets, you know this. I love charts. There's a whole bunch of stuff on this thing. Don't worry, I have arrows. Okay, Malachi... <laughs> Malachi is circled on the far right end of this. This is Old Testament history from beginning to end. And I just want to run it down for you in summary. Ready for an Old Testament summary in less than five minutes? Okay. You're like, can any preacher do anything in less than five minutes? We'll see. And go. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is Genesis 1.1. He made humans in his image. And what did he do? He blessed them. And they chose to go their own way instead, resulting in a curse instead of a blessing. There's that theme we talked about already. But God didn't give up on us. He chose a man named Abraham. Next arrow, if you're watching the slide. And he made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Then he renewed that covenant with Abraham's grandson Jacob as well. This is Genesis 17 for Abraham, Genesis 28 for Jacob. Jacob encountered God and his name was changed to Israel. This would become the name of the entire nation of his descendants, Israel. True to his word, God blesses this family. They increase and they multiply greatly where they're living in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh's like, whoa, that's threatening to me and my kingdom. So y'all are slaves. And that is rough. They spend 400 years in slavery, but the Lord hears their cry for help, and he delivers them through the work of Moses, who leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground. They spend 
more time than they needed to in the wilderness, but God provides, and eventually they enter the promised land that God had promised to them. That's why it's called the promised land. (laughs) They become a unified nation of 12 tribes and eventually ask for a king. We're now here. Two more arrows, because I forgot one along the way. God provides a king, and he makes a covenant with their second king, who is David, saying, I'll raise up a descendant of yours, David, who will rule an enduring eternal kingdom. What a cool promise. But within two generations, the kingdom splits into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the people are unfaithful to God. It's a huge theme of the Old Testament. I I don't know if I listed that one. No, I talked about covenant faithfulness. So that implies the unfaithfulness. That's one of the themes in Malachi, but through the whole Old Testament, cycles of unfaithfulness and the consequences and the Lord's deliverance. But anyways, that's aside. I only have five minutes for this review. We better keep going. The people are unfaithful. They worship the gods of the nations around them. They follow the ways of the surrounding nations as well. Israel's sin in the northern kingdom becomes so great that God gives them over to um, be conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and they cease to exist as a nation and a people group altogether. Judah, the southern kingdom, hangs on about 100 years longer, but then they too go into exile at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. Um, Many of the people go into exile in Babylon, Um, The city of Jerusalem, the capital city, is defeated. The temple of God where they worship is destroyed. They spend about 70 years in captivity. That's our next arrow on the big grand slide of history. But then they return. God does offer a restoration um, just before Malachi. They don't become a truly independent and sovereign nation again, but a remnant of the people return to Jerusalem The city's rebuilt. The temple is reconstructed. Hey, it's great to be back and to have a temple. But it sort of lacks the glory of the kingdom under David and Solomon. And so, if your stopwatch is stop, I think I made it in five minutes. It's at this point in history that Malachi comes on the scene and that he speaks these words of prophecy that we're going to look into. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 400 B.C., he writes, after the captivity. This is called the post-exilic era, after exile period of time. So what's going on at this time? The people have sort of a lackluster existence, wouldn't you say? Like David sort of solidified this unified kingdom. It was grand and glorious. He, He held down the territory, and Solomon built an amazing capital city and temple And now it's rebuilt, but it's not what it was. It's lackluster. And the people fail to see how their own lack of faithfulness contributes to this. They sort of blame God. And so um, the Nelson Study Bible writes about this. The book of Malachi reveals a people who question the reality of their sin and the faithfulness of God. It's a people hardened through and through. They're making the same mistakes as the generations before them, unfortunately. They harden their hearts to other prophetic calls to repent. Malachi is not the only prophet in your Old Testament. There's lots of other ones. He comes at the end of a line of them. There are others in this era, too. um, And there are community figures calling the people to live faithfully to God. 
but they're not. They're unfaithful and unresponsive. There's a commentary called the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary. The author is Andrew Hill. He says it's a time of religious cynicism and political skepticism. Sound familiar? <laughs> like today? Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> um, one more thing to add to the mix from the NIV preface to Malachi. They say Malachi faced a nation that had grown indifferent toward God. He preached to stir their hearts, to turn them from apathy and renew their commitment to the Lord. So this is the stew of life in Jerusalem at the time of Malachi, you guys. It's not pretty, it's not good, but it's a lot like our own time, isn't it? Anyone ever look around and feel like life is a little lackluster? Anyone have any cynicism floating around them? You don't have to claim it as your own or skepticism. Oh, you're not on Facebook. Okay, you're not on any social media whatsoever. Okay, well, it's out there. Trust me, I'm just kidding. There were plenty of nodding heads. I just did that to be goofy. So what does Malachi do in the midst of this? He brings harsh words of warning to wake up people. He brings, like our sermon series graphic shows, a hammer and a chisel because people's hearts are hard and he's got a lot to break through. But Malachi's message rests on a reminder of the covenant love of God. So don't miss this when you read Malachi in your Bible or as we go through this series, you guys. There are plenty of harsh words. We'll get to the dung smeared on faces in a minute, which is pretty rough and crazy. If you're not familiar, just wait. We'll get there. Piqued your interest, hopefully. That's a teaser, we call it in the biz. But all this harsh stuff he has to say is built on a reminder at the beginning of the book we'll get to in a moment. The covenant love of God undergirds. Uh, it's the foundation underneath it all. And the harshness is to call them back to covenant. Be faithful on your end. God is still faithful and still wants to bless you, to bless all nations. But I get ahead of myself. Okay. <clears throat> so... In the midst of all the cynicism, skepticism, disillusionment, the question at the time of Malachi is, how are God's people going to handle it? How will they respond? Are they going to keep blaming him? Are they going to conform to the culture of the nations around them? Will they keep religious routines but lack true, sincere worship? Will they lose their sense of identity and purpose? And so a lot of those same questions apply to us today. And so what I'm hoping in this series is that those of us who need to can recover what's been lost. You've been a Christian for a long time, and the cynicism and skepticism, the lacklusterness of life, the evil in the world has gotten to you. I hope you can recover what's been lost and return to come under the favor and blessing of the Lord to experience his covenant, covenant faithfulness to you and to be faithful to him. For those who remain faithful to this point, I hope we can find a renewed inspiration to wait well for the return of Jesus. Okay. I, li I like intros. I don't know if you guys do. Maybe you noticed that was like four pages of introduction. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> Seriously. Um, the author of this book is Malachi. His name actually means my messenger, which is really fun. 
I'll tell you why. Malachi's name means my messenger. He serves as a messenger of God to the people in his day. He prophesies about another messenger who will come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And then that Messiah is called the messenger of the covenant. Messenger, messenger, messenger. And there's a fourth one in there too, but I don't want to talk about that one yet. So there's three messengers that work here. Malachi, who we find out later, John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way, and Jesus Christ himself. And these three messengers have a similar uh, message that they preach. Malachi preaches repentance while waiting for the Messiah. John the Baptist preaches repentance to prepare Messiah's way. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 4, 17 when he comes on the scene? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is a biblical theme too, repentance, turning back to God. So in Malachi's version of the message of repentance, he uses a literary feature called disputation speech. Why don't you try to say that one? It's hard for me. Say dis... Oh, you guys are much better. Okay, good. So this is a, this is a confrontational approach, guys. Uh, make no bones about it. The dung on the faces is coming, in other harsh words. It's very confrontational, but there's a reason for it, right? This isn't some... I'll say it. This isn't some campus preacher telling people they're going to hell and just being hateful. There's a reason. God has sent many, many, many prophets and many, many, many warnings to the people, but they're unresponsive and hard of heart. And so he's ratcheted up his approach to this point. They have not responded to gentler correction. And so the goal of disputation speech, you could think of it almost like a courtroom, it's to leave the defendant speechless. (laughs) To leave no alternative but to accept the word of the Lord. It's harsh, it's direct, it's in your face. It's a warning to repent now, otherwise this could be the last warning before judgment comes. This is from that Tyndale commentary I mentioned earlier. Malachi pictures divine judgment as both punishment for sin and a call to repentance. The goal of God's judgment is the purification and restoration of the faithful of Israel. This is so important. Remember in the Lord is one series, we talked about it a lot. God is slow to anger. When he expresses his anger, what is it? Measured and appropriate. His judgment is given with his mercy fully engaged. It's not one or the other. It's judgment and mercy right here together. 100% of both all the time. That's what our God is like. God's judgment is unto a purpose. The purpose is restoration. He seeks to restore his people to relationship with him. It's so much better to respond sooner than they did in their day and age, right? Okay, the structure of this book, there are six disputes that the Lord makes with the people. And in each, there's a call for the people The first call in the first dispute is to right understanding. It's in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. The second call is to right worship. The third is to right marriage relationships. The fourth, to right community relationships. 
The fifth is right giving to God, and the sixth is right relationship with God. Six disputes with six calls for the people to respond in these ways. It's also structured in a mirror image pattern where the first and the sixth dispute have a similar theme. It's about God's chosen ones and God's enemies. You know, love and judgment for the chosen ones and the enemies. Number two and number five are a pair. It's about insincere worship. The people are bringing defiled animals in dispute number two. And in dispute number five, they're not bringing a tithe to God. The middle pair is disputes three and four. And in this, the Lord is pictured as a witness who testifies against the people. In dispute number three, they're marrying foreign women and divorcing their own wives. In dispute number four, they're liars, cheaters, stealers, adulterers, sorcerers. The list is rough. (laughs) And the Lord serves as a witness against those behaviors. So there's a mirror image pattern as well. For this series, we're going to take it like the first list. Today, I'm going to cover the first two with our remaining time today. Right understanding and right worship, disputes one and two, chapters one through half of two or so. Next week, Pastor Cameron will do disputes three and four, and then Kathy will do five and six in week number three. Sound like a plan? Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Wonderful. Okay, so let's get into it. Dispute number one has the goal of right understanding. So I just want to read to you Malachi 1, verse 1 through verse 5. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved, loved, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Okay, so what's going on in this passage? Let me just rephrase it in my simple way of thinking about it. Well, the simple part comes after this sentence. It's a rhetorical exchange between God and his people, right? He sort of sets up this like, God says, the people say something, and God responds. So it's like God says, hey guys, I love you. And they're like, yeah, right, look around. It doesn't look like you love us very much. This is lackluster at best. (laughs) Nothing like what it was when David and Solomon were king. And God says, all right, well, let me show you how I love you. And then he expands on it. Does that make sense? So let's dig into it. I have loved Jacob. Now, love doesn't just mean like you feel some warm fuzzies towards them. This is actually expressing the chosenness of Jacob, okay? And Jacob is a person. We talked about it in the big timeline, remember? Jacob is a person who encounters God. He receives a renewal of the covenant that his grandfather received from God. And his name's changed to Israel. So Israel's a person. But then Israel's the name of the people who descend from Israel 
slash Jacob as well. But then they split into two kingdoms. So Israel and Judah are Israel, who come from the person. But then they kind of come back, they kind of don't, have them do, have them don't, sort of, and they're not exactly a kingdom like they once were. And so sort of the remnant or the remaining people of God are Israel too. That's all represented in, I have loved Jacob. I have a covenant relationship with you guys. Remember we said that was the foundation. There's a bunch of harsh stuff coming, but it's built on top of this first. God starts by saying, hey guys, I love you. I have a covenant with you. I've been faithful for thousands of years up to this point to my covenant, even though you haven't been. I'm faithful still. I'm faithful still. And they're like, yeah, right. No, you aren't. (laughs) So he has to respond to that. Yeah, right. No, you aren't situation. He gives them a case study. He gives them the case study of Esau. He says, Esau, I have hated. And again, the word doesn't mean exactly what we would take it to mean today. It implies, or it's a symbol of something more. It means there's, it's like a representation of the hostility of broken covenant relationship, okay? Esau, in his story, he's a person too, Jacob's brother, twin brother. Esau despised and rejected the tokens or the symbols of God's covenant, okay? Esau broke covenant with God. And now Esau becomes the father of a nation which is called Edom. So he represents more than just a person too when God says, Esau, I have hated. This is a neighboring nation that the people Malachi is speaking to are very familiar with. They're known for their wisdom. They've become quite prideful as a result of their wisdom. And they actually allied with Babylon in defeating the nation that came from Esau's brother Jacob, God's chosen people. Edom opposed them militarily. Does that make sense? And so they've literally become the enemies of God and his people now. It's symbolically true. It's militarily true as well. So God says at the end, hey, you'll see it. You'll see what I'm about to do with Edom, and you'll say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Edom's doing well at the time Malachi writes or delivers this prophecy. They're doing great as a nation, probably better than Judah is. Uh, But their fall does come. History will look back and tell us that they they cease to exist. They don't get to occupy their land anymore. They're overtaken. They move on. They're nomads. Maybe they still exist, but they're not doing so great after a while is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) And so God's prophesying this through Malachi, saying, hey, just watch what happens to people who make themselves my enemy. And when you see it, ask yourself, do you really want to make yourself my enemy too? This isn't a good idea, guys. Why don't you return to covenant faithfulness instead? It also shows God's sovereignty over all nations. He's not just Israel's God. He's not just God over Jerusalem or in the temple, but he's God over all creation, every nation, and every kingdom. He uses them as he sees fit. They rise and fall at his will. So this first dispute is like the thesis statement for the book of Malachi. Um, It communicates the most important truth. God loves you. He chose you. He's sovereign and he's powerful. And the question that'll be 
spread through the whole book is, will you be faithful to him or will you reject him like Edom? Okay. This is getting good. Okay. The New Bible Commentary says, when the righteous suffer, like in their time, and the wicked seem to prosper, we're apt to question God's love. In this first disputation, Malachi exposes and answers the doubts of his contemporaries. Right? People are saying, God, you love us? Yeah, right, I don't believe you. (laughs) Just look at us in all of our circumstances. And that's what this first dispute is all about, going, no, 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 look, here's why, here's what you can believe. Remember, he's calling them to right understanding. You're loved. You're a treasured possession of God. You have a mission and a purpose in this world. I want to bless you to be a blessing to all nations and draw all nations to myself. In this first dispute, the covenant promises of God are activated. And the goal is to lead to a reciprocity from the people, right? That they reciprocate God's love back to him. They love him back um, in the form of genuine obedience and pure devotion. That's the goal. Okay, let's look at dispute number two. Who's ready for dispute number two? Go like this if you're ready for dispute number two. Two, two. Peace. (laughs) Dispute number two has a goal of... Uh, re-establishing right worship, right worship. Um, It starts in chapter 1, verse 6. If you haven't opened your Bible already, you might want to. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read sort of excerpts. It goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 9. That's dispute number 2. But let's read a chunk of it here. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Okay, so let's just break this down, too. Another rhetorical exchange is happening. There's actually a statement and a question twice in this one. God says, hey, you're showing contempt for my name. And they're like, how are we showing contempt for your name? No, we're not doing that. And he's like, yeah, you're bringing me junk, guys. Leftovers. And you call it worship. He says, no earthly ruler would accept that. But you think the creator of the universe who offers you a covenant of love deserves no better than this? Yikes. (laughs) Yeah, this is a stern confrontation, isn't it? With the goal of reestablishing right worship, sincere worship. 
In this section, God is portrayed as father, master, and king. He's a father because he created the entire world. He's a father to Israel because they're his chosen people. He adopted them as his own. He's a master because they had slave masters in Egypt, and the Lord delivered them from that master and became their benevolent, kind, loving master. He's a king because he's sovereign over all creation and every kingdom of the earth. But the people are not respecting his role as father, master, and king. He says, you honor your father, you respect your master, you fear your king, but you show contempt for me. What's up? There's a dual culpability in this section. Two people are guilty, two groups of people. The priests who offer the sacrifices and the people in general who bring these diseased, blind, lame animals in the first place. Both are guilty of insincere worship, defiled worship. The people are withholding their best. <clears throat> if you were here a while back, I talked in one of the giving talks when I was MC, I talked about like a stack of money, you know, like viewing our, our whole income as like a stack of money on the table. And like to give a tithe, which means 10%, is to take a tenth off the top and give it to the Lord as an act of worship. And in doing so, it brings the rest of the stack under the favor and blessing of God. Do you guys, some of you remember that if you were here? Yeah. So <clears throat> not doing that and giving him nothing means there's nothing left for him to bless. <laughs> or giving him the bottom, the crumpled cash and the couch cushion or the coins, there's nothing left to bless, right? And the same is true here in the terms of flocks and herds, right? The people aren't bringing an unblemished, perfect, spotless lamb or goat or bull or whatever the thing is for the different types of sacrifices they were to do, they're bringing the junk ones, right? They're like, well, this one will sell really good at the market. I need to sell that one and, and make the most money, and I'll give God this one, the blind one at the end, right? So they're withholding their best from God. <clears throat> they're giving him damaged goods, leftovers, junk, and there's nothing left to bless. So he says they're under a curse instead. That's what the opposite of blessing is. <laughs> Covenant faithfulness of God says, if you're faithful to do what I've asked you to do, to give me the first and the best, I will bless the rest. And so they've done the reverse, flipped it over and said, all the best is for me and I'll give you some scraps. And he's like, all right, that equals curse. That's what that is. <laughs> Now, the priests not only accept this practice, but approve of it. And I'm not going to spend the time to get into some technical Hebrew language structures that point that out, but it's in there. Trust me. The priests not only accept it, they approve of it. They're the ones who literally take the animal and say, yeah, okay, this is good. I'll offer that on your behalf to the Lord. Not cool. So when God says, cursed is the cheat who brings such sacrifices, um, in case you didn't notice, that's a harsh word. <laughs> and uh, commentators say that it's one of the most powerful decrees that authority figures might give, is that word of curse. Again, this re reveals how unresponsive the people had been, how far they had fallen, 
how unwilling to turn back to God they had been for so long. This is the level of confrontation it takes because of how hard-hearted they are. Does that make sense? I mean, picture it. God's nature, who he is, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he has to talk like this to get their attention. Yikes. Yikes. <clears throat> when he says, cursed is the cheat who brings such animals, he's activating one of those themes we talked about, the theme of blessing and curse. If you go to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, I'm not going to turn there and read it to you, but I'll summarize it right now. There's this whole string of covenant terms. And like, I don't remember if it's Moses or a priest, Aaron maybe, I don't know. Someone pronounces it, and the people all go, Amen, we agree. Next one, Amen, we agree. Amen, we agree. And God goes, all right, if you agree, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> You're going to receive the blessings of the Lord. You're going to be a blessing to all nations. Really, the whole world will be changed through this covenant I'm making with you. But then it also says the flip side is true. If you dishonor God and disobey, then you will be cursed rather than blessed. But the choice is yours. It's not arbitrary. The choice is yours. The terms are clear. Okay. Let's talk dung. <laughs> I thought it was funny. That <laughs> was the only one. Okay, Malachi 2, verse 3. The rest of the second dispute sort of expands on the issues. A lot of it's directed to the priests. Verse 3 is directed to uh, the priests and Levites, the people who serve in the temple um, and the priesthood. God says to them, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. <laughs> so what's happening here? The priests and Levites knew exactly what God meant by this. Because when an animal was brought for sacrifice, they did some butchering work. <laughs> and certain parts of the animal were for certain parts of the sacrifice, right? Like the blood, some of them it's like you sprinkle or you put it on a certain part of the altar. And then this part, you know, you burn it in the pot, you stick the fork. There's all sorts of rules about it, right? But then there's some leftovers. There's some animal waste that isn't used in the worship of God and the sacrifice. And that is uh, unclean, impure, unholy. And so the priests and Levites have the job of taking that stuff out to the refuse pile, to the ash heap, outside of the temple and the city, outside of God's presence. The impure things are carried off and discarded. And so God is saying, hey, you're offering unclean, impure animals, guys. And so the judgment fits the offense. You're making yourselves unclean and impure. Symbolically, I'm wiping the waste on your face, bro. <laughs> and you're going to be carried off with it. You will be discarded as well, away from the presence of the Lord. And this is their job, right? To work in the temple. And he's saying, all right, you're making yourselves impure here. You're out of a job. See you later. 
It's harsh but appropriate to the sin. Do you see how it fits it? God's not arbitrary. He's not being vindictive or seeking vengeance or something. But it, it's such a perfect fit for the offense. Right? You dishonor and make impure the place where I've given you my very presence. All right, well, you can be impure too. <clears throat> okay, like I said, there's some harsh stuff. Remember, it's built on love. <laughs> and then what's the goal here? I read you the verse 3 because it's kind of, uh, what's the word? Provocative, I guess. Verse 4 says, why? This harsh confrontation, there's a reason. The goal is restoration. Verse 4 says, hey guys, I sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue. He's saying, hey, I don't want it to end like this, but this is where you're heading. I would rather reestablish our covenant. If you want to be faithful, my blessing's just waiting for you guys. But if you don't, here's where this is heading. It's a rebuke unto repentance and restoration. And in verse 5, he talks about life and peace, elements of his blessing that he wants to give to the Levites, the priests, and all the people. That's still on the table. The offer is still good. God is still faithful to that promise, if only they will be faithful to him. <clears throat> Chapter 2 continues, and there's a contrast of faithful priests of the past with the corrupt priests of the present. Priests are supposed to revere and honor God, but these priests dishonor God and approve of corrupt practices. So these priests are meant to be messengers to the people as well, to teach them, train them, turn them back from their sins to God and be part of a restoration but they're so corrupt, they need messengers to turn them back to God. Do you see the irony there? And this is another one of, another instance of the use of the word messenger. You're supposed to be my messengers, priests, but you need Malachi, my messenger, to come and turn you back. This is how far it's gone. Okay, one more, one more uh, thing in the second dispute for today from the book of Malachi. One of the the next warning is um, that they will be despised and humiliated as consequences for their sin. And again, the judgment fits the offense. Remember at the beginning of Dispute 2, he says, you've shown contempt for my name. You've despised the name of the Lord. You've humiliated God by bringing him junk sacrifices. Right? Just think about it. Foreign people living in the nations around them, are bringing better sacrifices to false gods than the people who serve the one true living God are bringing him. It's humiliating. And yet the God of the universe has been so patient up to this point. But now he's saying, okay, it's got to change now or you're going to reap what you've sowed. You despise and humiliate me. A time is coming soon where you will be despised and humiliated if you don't turn back from this. So the goal of dispute number two is to reestablish right worship. The Lord wants faithful priests and faithful people who have a wholehearted devotion for him in word, in deed, and in their religious practices. Worship that gives the first and the best to God as Father, Master, and King. We're back where we started. Malachi offers a promise and a warning. 
promise is this. God is faithful to love you and keep his covenant with you. He's quick to forgive those who turn back to him. He richly blesses those who are faithful. That's a promise you can count on. The warning is true as well. The Lord is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's slow to anger, but a time comes where he meets a threshold and he will offer judgment. It fits the offense. So hear the warning, repent and avoid judgment. It's what Malachi communicated to his audience, and it's what we need to hear today as well. I just want to say, <laughs> no one likes the repent sermon. <laughs> it is in the Bible. <laughs> and... Um, think if you feel offended by it, you should take that as a signal flag. Um, There's nothing wrong with the Bible. There's nothing wrong with God. If you're offended by a call to repentance, then it probably means you actually need to repent, if that makes sense, right? Those who are faithful and in a vibrant relationship with God, they hear a call to repentance, and they're like, yeah, you're right, I need to. I do it all the time. But it's those who have drifted from God who hear it, And it makes you feel yucky. But it's supposed to for the point of restoration. Does that make sense? You don't have to stay in the yuck. (laughs) But you have to face it. I hope you get that, guys. So we live in 2023, not in 400 BC. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled the promise of the Messiah. You know, the messenger of the covenant, he's called. John the Baptist came before him to prepare the way. What did Jesus come to do? He was born. He's laid in a manger. Angels celebrate. Wise men bring him gifts. That's great. But what was he here for? To save us. From what? Ourselves. (laughs) To save us from our sin and the yuck. So, The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in that boat together, guys. You and me alike. Not a week goes by that I don't screw up. If you're honest with yourself, the same is true of you. But Jesus came to be Savior and Lord. If you make him that, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. You have the promise of eternal life. You have hope beyond the grave. And you can look forward with hope to his return when he comes to renew heaven and earth, to establish everything your heart longs for, to right every wrong, to wipe every tear from your eyes. But he's Savior and Lord. To get the blessings, he has to be Lord, which means he's the boss. He's in charge. There are terms of the covenant that we have to adhere to. We have to do our part and be faithful to him. So, In the words from the Lord is one series from Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor him with holy sacrifices. Give him the first and best of what you have. And I'm confident if you do, he will richly bless you. Probably in the here and now, but definitely in the life to come. Kathy, would you come and wrap up this morning? Yeah, that's a a challenging word, amen, Um, for those who have made the Lord the Lord of your life. There's still areas in our heart. I was thinking this morning, 
um, about some situations that happened yesterday where little judgments creeped into my heart and I wanted to, you know, say, well, you shouldn't be like this. And, you know, and point one finger at someone, you got three pointing back at you. Um, and so I had to repent. And we all have that opportunity every day to make it right with the Lord, to make him the Lord of our life. But we also have an opportunity this season. You know, this is a season when we gather with people that we might not gather with very often. If you know my heart, my heart is to reach all people. And so we have the opportunity to say, Jesus is the Lord of my life. And it made a difference to me. And it's done something. It's given me hope and it's given me peace. And I can withstand hard things because of it. And you can offer that hope to others. Because that's what Jesus came for, was that the whole world would be saved. Amen? So why don't we just take a moment, and would you stand, please, if you can? And let's just bow our heads in just reverence and honor of our Lord, who gave up, gave up his divinity to come as a human being and take on flesh and experience what we experience. Just blows me away that he would be tired, like I'm tired sometimes. He gave up so that we could be reconciled. He died a brutal death so that we could have access to eternal life. And so in whatever way that you have not given him your whole heart, you can give him your whole heart today. I'm just going to pray, Father, we just, we just surrender our whole life to you, our whole heart. We just say we want to honor you with our best. We just give all to you because you gave all for us. And Lord, we just know that your love for us is so great. We just want to receive that love into every part of our life, into the parts of our heart that might have been rebelling or continually sinning. We just want to receive your love into every place so that we can have full reconciliation with you. We can stand in your blood and know that we have been forgiven, completely forgiven, and have complete access to you. And if any of you today don't know that freedom of having your sins completely forgiven, all you have to do is believe and then submit to the Lord. Just give your whole heart to him. Yeah, we just thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.